Hi, and welcome to the New Futurist Podcast, a show where we focus on practical ways to gain greater clarity and insight about how the world is changing, and more importantly, about what you can do today to take a more active role in creating the kind of future that you want to see. My name is Jared Nichols. I'm the host of this show, and today I've got something special for you. Uh, this is an interview that I did when I was the host of the Road Ahead podcast. And uh, this is something that uh, I went back and looked at and listened to and realized that even though uh, we recorded this a few years ago, the wisdom and the insight shared by my guest today is still very relevant and applicable uh, to creating the future, to thinking differently about the actions that we take and how to make better decisions. So this is something I know you're going to enjoy. So stick around for this show here. But before we do that, Real quick, let's do a little house cleaning. If you have not subscribed to the show, take a second, click the subscribe button. And this helps us do two things. Number one, it helps us to make sure that you are getting the most up-to-date shows and information, things that uh, will help you uh, along this journey when it comes to creating the future. But it also gives us insight into what is most important to you. It allows us to have a conversation back and forth so we can better understand what is really resonating uh, better understand what you want to hear more about. And then that gives us the ability to uh, bring on new guests, create new content, and, uh, and, and ensure that we're providing value to you going forward. So if you haven't, click the subscribe button. And uh, yeah, without further ado, let's jump into the show. Well, Dov, thanks again for taking the time to, uh, to, to talk to us today about uh, your uh, your great insight around organizations. You've seen how organizations have changed. You've you work with leaders of all kinds of businesses. I mean, Fortune five hundreds, family businesses, small businesses, and I know in many of our conversations, you've pointed out that uh, that regardless of the size of the organization, leadership characteristics and traits are the same. They may be applied in a different way, but yeah. you find the commonalities in these that so it's not just something that is for a fortune 500 but it can apply to an individual can apply to a small business and uh it, you know tell us a little bit about that i mean it, tell us a little bit about some of the experiences that you have had working with all these different types of organizations uh over the years and then we'll certainly jump into the most important part here about how we see the sure. workforce and uh, changing and how that is uh requiring an entire entirely new type of leadership so yeah, thanks, mate. I really appreciate you asking me, and thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate that, too. And I want to say before I start that if you're listening to this show, um, please l write to Jared, let him know, because he takes the time to bring you great guests. And it's really important that you're not just listening to this in the background, that you're actually taking notes and, and listening, because you know he's bringing you great people that bring you great jewels. And don't, don't scatter that. Pay attention to it. Focus on it. I know we live in the ADD society. Jared and I just had a combo about that. <laughs> <laughs> that we're going to start an ADD conference that will go, hey, how are you? <laughs> so, I mean, I know we live in that society, but let's pay attention. Let's focus on because he's bringing you great guests to, for you to have really great value. So you want to do that. Now, coming back to what you were saying, leadership, when you think about it, you know, we, we think about leadership as something we do for others. We lead others. But if we don't know how to lead ourselves first, and, and even that sounds like a wild concept, leading yourself. Well, of course I lead myself. I get up in the morning, I do what I do. No, no. Leading yourself is actually being in a place of conscious choice, being consciously aware of what's going on around you, and instead of being reactive 
to it, being able to respond to it. And that takes a level of not just intelligence, but emotional intelligence. And that's a vastly different concept. And so often you and I, and when I say you and I, I mean you and I, Jared, but also you and I, the, the listener, we meet people who've got PhDs at the yin-yang. We've got meet people who are enormously, quote, successful. And it's, sometimes it's like talking to a bag of spuds. I mean, sometimes it's like, you know, like, why does this person not know how to connect? And without that ability to connect, you cannot lead. So leadership is is certainly, you know, the ability to have the mind and the clarity and the vision and all that. But at the base level, leadership, whether it's political, whether it's industry, whether it's personal, whether it's familial or whatever it is, it is relational first. So getting that grip first is so valuable. And you can't do that authentically if you don't lead yourself, meaning, and that starts with self-knowledge. Well, so... You know, we're talking about leadership being relational first. Mm-hmm. That's always been the case, though, right? I mean, or would you say that leadership has changed over the years, or at least what's expected, or what is, or maybe maybe the place that it holds, right? You said yeah, relation, I think you're right on both first. counts. I think you're right on both counts. I think that it, it has changed, but it's always been there. Um, the priority is different now. So, you know, back, you know, before the world of digital, before there was social media, we all kind of understood that you got to get out and shake a few hands and do all those kinds of things. And we had this this wonderful idea back in the 90s, which was called open door leadership, open door management. Um, but really what it was, was don't bug me. I'll leave the door open, but don't come in. Right. Now what we've got is we've got more connective device, more communication devices and we're less connected than we've ever been. We, we, yeah. we don't actually connect at a heart and soulful level. So the need for that has become greater and greater and greater because even though uh, we may have all these devices and we have all these outlets, Facebook and LinkedIn and, and Snapchat and a million others, that personal connection with people is so vastly different. You and I knew each other online before we ever had a conversation and it was, you know, that cool guy, I have respect for him, he's doing cool stuff. But when we, you and I started to talk and connect, like, you know, it's like we have to set an alarm to get ourselves to stop talking right. because it's that real connection, that heart, soul, on fire, finding things that are in common. And if you've got to be a great leader, that's where you've got to come to. You've got to find out where that peace is within that person yeah. that is aligned with you. And it's needed now more than ever if you're going to create loyalty in your people. No, I, I think that's really important to point out, and it goes both ways, too. I think you, when you and I spoke last week, we were talking about this as we were getting ready to talk about the show and what we were going to discuss, mm-hmm. and and the issue that uh, that a couple of colleagues of mine were having and we were trying to um, play back and forth was this: the problem we have with social media and with all of the information that's available, it does exactly what you just said, is that People are more connected now than ever before, but they're more disconnected. They don't really know each other. And so there's a deep sense of loneliness that a lot of people are struggling with. But on top of that, we were talking specifically about sales and about how to get there. So the person I was talking to, uh, he's, he runs a very successful insurance brokerage. And he was, we were talking about how to get his people to, uh, to, to be more active, to actually increase their production. Yeah. And in that conversation it veered towards, well, there's so much information out there from social media and all these other sources. And what I pointed out, and he agreed with this as well, is that it's, it almost becomes a crutch to avoid actual contact with people. 
Because if I can find out anything and everything I need to find out about Dov Baron that's online and still never even talk to him, then I can check that box and say, well, I, I marketed to him or I sent something out to him, right? He's a prospect or whatever it might be. But you and I never even having a conversation. In reality, you're not a prospect. You don't know me and you have no interest in knowing me because I'm not offering you anything of value. I get stuff in my inbox all the time. <laughs> Sadly, people that connect with me on LinkedIn yep. and then throw me a sales pitch. I'm like, who taught you to do this? There's no way I'm interested in this. No. So uh, that goes both ways though, right? I mean, for leadership, it's still the same. Uh, you know, Leaders can say, well, look, we have these great internal systems for communication that uh, allow them to monitor productivity or whatever it might be, but there still needs to be that relational aspect. So how, did, how have you seen leaders, because I'm sure you have to deal with this with all the clients that you work with and the folks that you talk yeah. to, how do you help them overcome that, but at the same time, you know, not become not lose sight of the fact that, that the organization still rests on their shoulders. At the end of the day, if things fall apart, it's still on them. So how do you create that balance for your clients? That's a great question. And I think my, my answer may surprise many people because, first of all, let's, let's go back to a bit of a, a statistics here. Um, if we take a Fortune 500 organization, what do you think the average CEO makes a year? You can guess. It's okay. Yeah, what, $12 million a year? Right. So let's just, let's just say $10, $12 million a year, right? How many productive minutes, hours a day do you think that person gets in? Oh, I think I know this one. Two, right? <laughs> yeah. It, on a really good day, it's 45 minutes. Oh, in, man. In a nine-hour day. I was a bit generous. <laughs> 45 minutes, okay, in a nine-hour day. So why are they paid $12 million a year using your number for, for 45 minutes a day of production? Because that, five, that 45 minutes is incredibly productive. How is it productive? By great relationships. Hmm. The fact of the matter is, yes, the bottom line lies on the CEO, but there is nothing to run if you don't understand people. Right. And they go, well, you know, that's my HR department. Oh, that, that's the, the CFO takes care of his team. The CMO takes care of her team. The CIO takes care of her team. No, no, it's all yours. Your number one job before CEO, CRO, CMO, whatever, is a CIO is a CRO, chief relationship officer. You have got to be a chief relationship officer. You, when you walk down the hall, know people's names. It changes absolutely everything. Because the, here's the deal. If you're the C, CEO, everybody around you, you think their job is to produce, right? It's not. In their head, I'll tell you what their job is in their head. Their job is to keep you from being stressed. Their job is to make sure you have a good job so they're not going to tell you shit that might upset you. Because if they do, they could get fired. So, yes, they're productive, but only to ease your, your anxiety because they don't want to live with that. Yeah. However, if you have a conversation with them and you get to know them, you you get rid of the sycophants. And this is one of the things I just did. A, I just did a uh, piece on this that there is no room for sycophants in leadership, but there's also no room for people who love sycophants in leadership. And in, in, for those of you who are not uh, familiar with the language, sycophants means people who are yes people who mm -hmm. say yes all the time. You can't afford that, but you will get that if you are lofty. 
And that's why the whole process of what we teach is called full Monty leadership. It's stripping it all naked, revealing yourself. And people go, well, I'm the boss and I don't want to get too familiar. Listen, if you don't get familiar, you're dead in the water. One of my favorite shows, Undercover Boss. Why? Because there is no distance. And suddenly the person running the organization finds out, yeah, this idea we have of uh, corporate culture is dead in the water. It's not what actually happens on the floor. And, and you've got to understand this. Your front person, let's say you run an organization, Jared, and your organization is a Fortune 100, okay? Um, and you're, you've got uh, Tommy on the front desk, okay? And I call Tommy, and Tommy's in a piss-poor mood. And Tommy picks up the phone and he goes, Jared Nichols Group. And I go, hi, this is Dov. What, what can I do for you? And he's got that tone, and it's not warm. Who do you think I think is a bad person? Me. I'll tell you who it is. <laughs> it isn't Tommy. That's right. right. It isn't Tommy. I go, those people at Jared Nichols suck. Jared Nichols' company suck because your front person is you. Right. And if you don't have a relationship with that front person or they think that you're a douche or you're distant or you're unavailable, why would they be warm? They're not going to do it. So understanding that you're, you're, yes, you carry the weight of the business, but the weight of the business is held in the relationships you hold. Yeah, and I think that really that's a good segue into what we've been talking or what we were planning on talking about. And what we're going to start talking about here is that the the need to encourage entrepreneurship in your organization because what you're describing really is you're describing the old model of top down hierarchical structures Absolutely. and organizations yep. that people went to work for a paycheck. And it was usually, you yep. know, you think of uh, powdered sugar, right? That was the, oh, because this is such a great place to work and we all love each other. But at the end of the day, you were going to do mm -hmm. anything and everything you could to make sure that you did not jeopardize your job. But that's right. the opposite of entrepreneurship, which in right. turn obviously is entrepreneurship, the internal right. form of, of risk taking and, and you know, yep. contributing your uh, intellectual capital as well as your physical labor. But this is, this is really key because People within an organization, especially when you're dealing with younger people, in a world where, regardless of the reality or not, there seems to be infinite possibilities of what could happen or what they could do, there, that, that stirs an innate drive in us to create and to discover and to find ways where we can contribute to something that has much greater impact, right? And that, yep. that for an organization to survive, they have to have ownership if not actual ownership, conceptual ownership. So uh, tell us about how you've seen that change over the years and, uh, and, and who's doing it right. You know, and yeah. you know, if you, you don't have to mention a specific person, but what types of leaders are doing it right. And, and what are some of the ways that people can start to think about this? You know, this is a great question and a really important subject for all of us to see moving forward. I mean, I know your stuff is focused on the future and I think this is a future piece that people are still so far behind on in that they think I'm the boss or I'm the owner and you work for me. And if you've got that approach, you're dead in the water. You're just dead in the water. 2008 changed the consciousness of the workforce. And, that, and if you don't hear anything else, just hear that. 2008 changed the consciousness of the workforce. And people go, well, the economy's back online and all this. Yeah, okay. Let's pretend that that's true. Whether it is or not, I don't know, but let's pretend that it is. But what happened in 2000 and 2009 
is you saw the tents go up in the Occupy movement across the world, not just in Wall Street, across the world. And the media pretty much ignored it for the first three, four months. And then it just became massive worldwide. Well, now business people think, well, those tents are down. They're down physically, but they're still up inside the minds of millennials who were the people in those tents. They understand they got screwed over and they understand I cannot rely on big business to, to for my future. So your job that you're offering me is not my only or my best option. My best option is me. I have to be self-resourceful. Millennials got that. God bless them. I really think that's amazing. But now Gen Xs and boomers have to get that instead of going, well, these people are not very loyal. I mean, you know, my last book was called Fiercely Loyal. How do you get those people to be loyal? And it's entrepreneurship is one of the pieces. Have them feel part of it. Include their ideas. And there are many companies that have done this now for quite some time. LinkedIn does it. Uh, Google does it. Uh, Facebook does it. Uh, 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 Microsoft does it with the garage. And they create these times, these spots where you can go work on your own thing. And it's still your own. And it's your time. But giving people that space to feel like they're part of it, and then they can actually offer it into the organization, make your people feel like they're part of the company by by not giving them the rigidity. This is the other thing with, you know, you were talking about ADD a while ago, but also creativity. Mm-hmm. Understanding that piece is that we all have this desire to create. I want to put my, my input in it. I want to see that that has value. So this... As you said, entrepreneurs is all about risk. Jobs is all about no risk. Right. So entrepreneur is how do I facilitate, this is what we, uh, we do with companies, is showing them how to facilitate risk without too, too much cost and, and without the person feeling like I'm going to lose my job if I fail. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the simplest example is an old one, but that is the post-it note. The post-it note is a failure. Most people don't know that. It was designed by a guy who was trying to develop the strongest possible glue. And what he got was this glue that worked great for paper. And it was a massive success and has made 3M a ton of money. But he was a failure at doing what he was supposed to do. And it's that level of reconceptualizing that gives that you've got to create these playgrounds for entrepreneurship, for creativity. And as you so clearly point out, an important piece for people to grasp Innovation, because innovation is, as you say, is not upgrading the old shit. Hmm. It's not that at all. And here's the key with innovation. Everything you said about innovation, I am so on board with. I just want to add one point. Innovation will not take place without safety. So you can't innovate in an unsafe place. Innovation only takes place in a safe place. So if you make it safe for me to fail and be creative, then I will innovate. But if I'm going to get my legs slapped, and I could lose my job for screwing up. I ain't innovating. Screw that. Right. I'm stick to the rules. <laughs> no, that's a good point. I'm really glad you. I've never actually heard that or considered it. But you're right. I mean, it's the uh, we're not going to take risk if we're in survival mode. And if you are no. feeling like you're at risk of losing something that is key to your survival, you are not going to. You're not going to take that risk. So that's that's a great point. That's well said, well, Dove. Really in survival do. mode, just so everybody understands, in survival mode, 27 percent of the blood flow to your frontal lobes. That part of your brain that you do the, the, the creative and, and the, the decision-making, 27% of the blood flow is cut off during high stress or survival mode. So you're 27% dumber and less creative when you're in high stress. 
However, if you create safety for somebody, emotional safety for somebody, then all that blood flow comes back to that positive brain that makes them way more creative, way more decisive. So emotional safety is vitally important. Well, I think another aspect of that as well is clear, very succinct communication. And man, I see this all the time, Dovin, I'm sure you do yeah. too, that when you're working with somebody, one of the biggest productivity killers, one of the biggest areas that needs to be fixed is on clear, sync communication that has a very clear objective and it's only being sent to the people who need to actually accomplish it. I mean, I mean, how many email chains and reply alls have you had to clean up and said, stop it, 90% of this stuff is not worth it because there's so much ambiguity. And I feel like this is, well, not feel, I mean, I see this when I'm working organizations and, and I know you do yeah. as well, is that there's it's trying to strike this balance in the world that we live in today where people that come to work for you, there's not an assumption they have less education. They may know twice as much as you. They may not yes. know how to apply it. They may know right. twice as much as you. So there's all of a sudden it kind of creates this imbalance in the way things have always been done, right? So it's, yes, if you come to work for me, well, I already assume that if you're having to work for me, I know more than you. I'm smarter than you. And even if I don't, you're going to act like I do and we're going to be fine. But that's not the world that we live in anymore. So it is. So this guy, you know, and I was just thinking, I'm thinking out loud here about the whole concept of full Monty leadership, just laying it all bare at certain points. Uh, it can almost work against somebody if they're not really clear on what it is that needs to be done because now they're creating more ambiguity because, well, yeah, just I trust you to do this. I'm going to empower you to figure this out. I've had to deal with guys that have said, look, I empower my team to do this. And when we really looked, I said, no, you've actually disabled them by thinking you've given them a more flat organization and freedom to do what they think is best. They're still looking to you as the leader for confirmation and affirmation in a lot of ways so that they know exactly what their limits are, right? I mean, so how do you find, how do you create the balance in that? That's a great piece. So we do a lot of stuff around flattening the hierarchy. But one of the things we say is because um, uh, when it comes to particularly when it comes to millennials is millennials hate rules, but they love boundaries. Yes. And this is a piece that most people feel. So they go, well, I'm just going to empower my people to do whatever. Well, then you're going to be wasting a lot of time and energy and resources. However, they love boundaries. And that means you have to have a clear accountability system. And what happens is when you flatten the hierarchy, a lot of time the accountability system goes away as opposed to check-ins. And we talk about hard deadlines, soft deadlines, check-ins, all the ways to make sure, oh, I'm still on track. Yep, you're still on track. Fantastic. What do you need? What do you think you might need? Who could help you with that? How can you help yourself with that? And that constant connecting, and, and again, it, for me, it has to be done eyeball to eyeball. One of the things we do with the companies we work with, we say you need, you need three five-minute huddles a day, one in the morning, one, at lunch, one after lunch, and one at the end of the day. And the one in the morning is with the people that you've got to do stuff with that day who may need you. Sort that out. Five, ten minutes, it doesn't take long. You do the same after lunch. With the, you know, Is there anything that came up that we didn't get done, whatever needs to be done? Touch base. The one in the evening is what do we? What do you need to get in place for tomorrow? And it's like I'm just like, oh my goodness! It, like that 15, 20 minutes changed everything. Yeah, as you said, clear communication instead of this ambiguous bullshit of let's let, let's empower our people with some new age nonsense. I am all for flattening the hierarchy, absolutely. But understanding that mentoring is not up down. Or down up. So it's not like I'm the boss, so I'm going to mentor you because you, as you just said, because you work for me. But I got something to learn from you because you came in. 
fantastic. It's 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 across too. It's peer to peer, but it's also understanding that I'm the one. If I'm the leader, I'm the one with the objectives that I'm pushing onto you, and you've got to be really clear about what those are. And this is a big piece we do around communication in the work we do, is asking the question. Not so one person like, well, is a communication for me to say this and then get them to say it back? And I say, yeah, but that's not complete. And they go, why? I say, because at school you're taught to repeat. Mm-hmm. And I said, and if you went to school, which I assume you did, you learned to repeat. And the day after the exam, you couldn't explain the thing that you had just repeated. So repeating is not understanding. So you say, what did I say? I did this. Tell me what A means. Oh, this. Tell me what B means. This. Tell me what C means. That. Well, you know what? You're kind of in the right ballpark, but here's – and that understanding is a different thing because, remember, we all live in a subjective world. Oh, yeah. And so I know exactly what you mean. Do you really? <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean so that I don't lose my job, right? <laughs> exactly. I, I think – I'm really glad you pointed this out, Dov, that there is a real distinct difference between uh, empowerment and rules and boundaries, because just, because just like you were talking about, I mean, if you have a flat organization, that's great. But there still needs to be boundaries. Because Absolutely. if everybody's a you know, conceptual leader, then nobody is. And it doesn't mean that, well, okay, then somebody can't be a leader at various times. No, I mean, there is the whole concept of adaptive leadership, which is basically the outcome of having yes. uh, a successful organization that has embodied entrepreneurship, right? Some, a situation arises, and the right person steps up and leads for that moment. And that's leadership, yeah. and that's really important. But there still needs to be those boundaries of, at the end of the day, you know, it's still I am the one giving you the objectives that need to be clean, you know, that need to be uh, completed. And this is my organization, and uh, you know, we're building it together. So, I think that's that's really good too. And another thing, just to add on there as well, I see this a lot. Of people, I don't know if they're spending as much time with it. But a big question a couple of years ago was always about how do we motivate millennials? And I used to tell folks, stop it. Don't try to motivate them. You're going to demotivate them because they don't they feel patronized. The best thing is to give them the freedom to run and create whatever it is that you're trying to get done. And it goes back to the boundaries, right? If you have a clear objective, these are the boundaries you can operate in. Now just let me know when it's done. They're gonna do it ten times better. You can't micromanage these folks and so on. So you definitely, really can't, you definitely can't micromanage millennials. Um, and aside from that, just a little sidebar, and again, why it's four months of leadership is because millennials have the best bullshit meter in the world. No. And they will smell your inauthenticity or your authoritarian patronizing. They will smell that a mile away. And you've got to get real with these folks. It doesn't mean that, that – um, so for instance, as you may have noticed, I swear, millennials swear. If you don't swear, they don't trust you. Right. Do the research on that. Do the research. I challenge you as you're listening to this. Go Google that. Do millennials trust people who don't swear? The answer is no. Is that the secret because to your success? Yours, exactly. Gary Vaynerchuk. It's because you guys swear. I'm going to have to make a note to self. <laughs> but it has to, But again, it can't be inauthentic. Like for me, it's that's who I am. It's okay. And right. I've watched people trying, like, you know, they've got the blue suit, white shirt, red tie, and they're trying to swear. And I'm like, could you be more awkward? <laughs> could you be more awkward? <laughs> so, it's just, so, I mean, it's, it has to be natural to the person. I'm not saying that people should swear. I'm saying that understanding that millennials have a different value system. Mm-hmm. And you've got to grasp that and if, if you're going to lead them. And, and millennials have to understand when I work with them, I do a lot of translation between baby boomers and millennials. And, of course, we've got Gen Xs in the middle. 
But that translation is understanding values at both ends. And, and uh, just because a millennial wants to come to work in a pair of uh, jeans and a T-shirt and that they've got tattoos doesn't mean they don't respect the organization. Right. But if you started working, you're now in your 50s and 60s, and you showed up like that, you wouldn't have lasted five minutes. So you're still holding an old, old paradigm. And yeah. grasping, they are different. It doesn't mean they're less valuable. It doesn't mean they're, just, they're less respectful. They, they love guidance. They just don't want to be micromanaged. That's yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I think this, uh, the whole point around authenticity, this is something that is a, is a big deal, obviously, and is a big area of focus for a lot of leadership training and just leaders trying to say, how do, how do we really embrace that? And I know you have on, on your website, you have this, uh, uh, this self-assessment around whether or not somebody's an authentic leader. I, but what's yeah. interesting about that is you have these five areas that really focuses on it, it share a little bit about what those are, because I think this will help people take a personal assessment, even just listening to this right now as to, you know, uh, okay, so these are the areas I need to be thinking about, you know, outside yeah, of going and taking the assessment on, on DOF sites. So. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, um, I give you an example. Um, one guy I was working with, he's, he's actually military. He's a military leader. And he said he went and took the test and he said, do you, I have a question for you. This is afterwards. And I said, yeah, sure. And he goes, do you think I'm a pretty authentic guy? I go, yeah, I think you're a very authentic guy. He goes, why did I score low in an authentic leader on the test? And I said, because it's not about authentic leader. And he goes, but it is. I go, no, it's authentic leadership in action. Mm. And he went, oh, that is different. I never thought about that. So you can be authentic, but when you put it into the action of being a leader, can you stay authentic? That's mm. the distinction. So there, there are five categories. The first category is authentic leadership in action. So can you be authentic even in the work that you're doing? And again, the challenge becomes this subjective world, authentic. You and I walk around, we interview 100 people, are you authentic? Maybe one would say, maybe not. Most people are going to say, yeah, because it's within the subjective conceptualization of how I assess myself. And none of us is objective in our subjective reality. We can't step outside of ourselves and go, oh, that was kind of fraudulent. <laughs> but we do feel it. I think we do feel it. We know when we're kind of off. Um, and so that piece, that actually is a vitally important piece, is, is being authentic in the action. The second one is culture. Is it, are you creating an authentic culture? Are you an authentic leader leading an authentic culture? And most people, when I go into an organization, because this is all falls in the category of the work we do, and I'll say, what is your culture? And they hand me some brochure, and I go, this is a brochure. It's not your culture. Hmm. They go, no, it outlines our culture. I go, no, it doesn't. And they go, well, I promise you it doesn't. I go, I promise you it doesn't. Give me three days inside your company, wandering around as if I'm a new employee, and I'll tell you what your culture is. And I guarantee that at best, it's 50% of what you've got in that brochure. Yeah. So understanding that piece is a vitally important piece. So assessing that, then looking at purpose, um, this, you know, Jim Collins in, uh, in his work showed the companies that lasted more than 11 years on the fortune 500 list were companies that were purpose driven, but companies drifted off that list in a very short period of time because they weren't purpose driven. So having a company that's purpose driven, Simon Sinek said, you know, it has starts with why. Great thing. But people now have contrived a why. They've made one up as opposed to actually knowing what it is. And a true why is what we talk about is the why of your why, which is finding out what's the emotional content of that why for you 
for the organization and for your leadership team that you're working with and tying those together, vastly different. That's the purpose and which demands leadership development. That's why the two categories are together. Then we've got emotional intelligence, which again is one of these things that is a vagueness of understanding because people think emotional intelligence is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to understand you. No, emotional intelligence starts with you. Oh, I just want to start saying emotional intelligence is something I'm going to do to you. <laughs> just, exactly. I'm going to do it to you. Yeah, that doesn't so match. Emotional intelligence starts with self-knowledge. And self-knowledge is, well, listen, I'm a dick and that's just what I am. No, that's self-acceptance, but it's not self-knowledge. It's looking, well, why am I a dick? Let's have a look underneath the, let's look underneath the surface here. So that emotional intelligence piece is, is vital, and it's also understanding that that's ongoing. And then the fifth one is communication and conflict resolution. Because as you said, massive, massive problem is communication. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, we've all heard the, the stat, the number one thing people are afraid of is, is uh, public speaking. We've all heard that, right? It's not true. I, I, I teach public speaking. I teach something called the Authentic Speaker Academy for Leadership. I've seen people come in, we work with people who are professional speakers and people who have never spoken before. And people stand there sometimes with a microphone shaking so hard, they look like they're in some kind of ad for something, you know, they're just terrified. But we can get them over that. No. No problem. It will happen. But addressing people's conflict, oh my goodness, that is something that is like, it is paralyzing oh. people dealing with conflict. And yeah. if you don't have an organization that teaches people how to deal with conflict in a healthy and safe manner, you are already dead in the water. So those are the five categories that we've got to have if we're going to have a full Monty, authentic leadership team and organization that operates at the highest possible function. And you can find you can do your own self-assessment by going to Matrix, like the movie, matrix.fullmontyleadership.com, matrix.fullmontyleadership. Go through it. It's a, it's a very quick test, and you'll come out and take a look at and you'll see where your real strengths are. And maybe there are some things in there that you can say, well, okay, that's not my area. Somebody else can handle that. But most of it, you're going to have to go, if I'm going to be that kind of a leader, I need to develop that. What, what we may see is an epidemic of people saying, I, I just don't want any employees. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't pass on any of these things here, and it's probably best for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I need a small room <laughs> with a lot of computers. Yeah, exactly. But I, I no, think, you know. No you, human contact, please. Right. Well, I really, I appreciate the last part of that. I mean, everything you just said was great. The uh, last part makes me think of this. My my personal pet peeve is passive aggressive behavior. And I think that any leader you actually know will say the same thing too. And so in order to avoid that, uh, and by passive aggressive, I guess, or is maybe the avoidance of conflict, which means that, so, uh, so that's not even passive aggressive, but the avoidance of conflict. So things will go unaddressed for months on end. Um, I tell folks this story uh, that, you know, for me, when I had my own personal uh, uh, shift in, in the way that I thought was probably about 10, 15 years ago, we had some close friends and and uh, and I always have gotten along with everybody, you know, being a military brat moving around my whole life. That was part of my survival mode, making sure that I could sure. be friends on the fly. And so anyway, uh, there was a, a couple of folks that we were really close with and um, we were all like a big family and uh, – You know, there is this one evening we were all talking and it just kind of came out. A couple people had a real problem with me because of something that I said or did nine months previous. And it was around that time when I realized, okay, there's two options that I have here. One is, is that I can take this to heart and feel guilty and apologetic 
uh, and continue forward. And the other is, is that I can recognize that this, there's nothing, my intent was never, I never had the intent to upset somebody. And so really flipping it around is is that unbeknownst to them, they've been lying to me for nine months because they've been holding this grudge and harboring this ill will. And this is something that you see so often. So rather than letting it eat me up, now I didn't turn around and say, well, we're no longer friends. I just explained, I'm sorry, that was never my intent, but you can't expect me to you know, moan and groan and feel guilty about this. You have got to communicate with me. What I realized is that my type A personality, they were very intimidated by and I realize sure. that this, and I know you see this in a lot of organizations, that somebody may say something that is, uh, seems offensive, but has not their intent at all. But if they're in a leadership position, that has to be an area where it's, you have to have the balance because you don't want them to dumb it down or try to become the soft tender or else they're going to explode inside and it'll get much worse. But to be able to clearly communicate to people, it's okay to tell me the minute something's wrong, Right. You're not going to get fired. I need to know so that we can make sure that we avoid any problems and we can move on and it'll be smooth sailing. So I really think that's a key area. And man, it it, just it's a key area. And what you just said, I think, is really important and profound for people to address. Um, and it, you said a few things in there that I want to address uh, and sort of working backwards. You know what you said, type, type A personality, uh, you're moving through things fast and you don't even notice that you've upset somebody. And and. Most A-type personalities I know do that all the time. Um, and, and, you know, I'm kind of that personality myself a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Does not show, no. <laughs> I know you never notice. I'm usually pretty. <laughs> you're, you're very but, shy. You know, <laughs> but one of the things I, said, I say to my friends is, is if you are going to be intimidated by me, we're not friends. Right. That's not what friendship is. So you've got to know that as much as I have this big personality – You've got to you've got to have balls to show up and say, I was upset by that. I was offended by that. Here's one of the principles we teach in this is the avoidance of conflict creates conflict. You've got to grasp that just because it doesn't come out doesn't mean it's not conflict. So the conflict is inside your own noggin. It's stuff that's rattling around in your own head and causing all kinds of problems. And therefore, it's causing disengagement and causing lack of innovation and all those things really grasping that you need to be able to communicate this because it creates healing. It creates a bond between those two people. So that's the first thing. You've got to, as a leader, you've got to give permission for people to call you out. Now, here's the other thing. And this is for all leaders to learn around what we call compassionate leadership because it's a very important piece, particularly for people like us who are A-types. And if you're a leader, you're probably an A-type. Yeah. So compassionate is, is really understanding this, that we... We judge everybody that we say who they are based on their behavior. Well, Fred did this and Fred did that. And so clearly this is who Fred is. But we want to be judged by our own intention. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be judged by our behavior. We want to be judged by our intention. Ah, hold on a minute. That's called a double standard. So if I'm going to judge you by your behavior, then you get to judge me by mine. Well, guess what? As an A-type personality, sometimes my behavior is a little off. <laughs> right? So I need to remember that to judge other people by intention and behavior, not one or the other, but both. Right. So I say Fred's behavior was this, Fred's behavior was that. That adds up to this. Now let me go check with Fred. Let me have communication with Fred. Let me do some real communication and conflict resolution to go, hey, Fred, this is what we see in consistently. Tell me where this is coming from, mate. I want to understand because I don't think you're an a-hole, but this behavior looks that way. 
And Fred goes, oh my God, I'm so sorry. When I get stressed, I do X or Y. Okay, Fred, what can we put in place to give you a strategy for managing your stress better? Well, if I could do this, that would, be, that would help me so much. Oh, okay, we can do that, no problem. This is the thing is so understanding. You can't judge other people by behavior and expect to be judged by intention. It has to be both. That's number one. You have to not once say, you can come to me and talk to me even though I'm intimidating. You have to repeatedly do that. It is on you as the leader to constantly do that. Constantly say, you're not going to get fired. I actually appreciate it. It makes me be a better leader. Now, some of that is going to be personality, like this person just doesn't like the way that you are, and you're not going to change that as such. But some of it is like, oh, it's a nuance because part of emotional intelligence is actually realizing that not everybody in the world is like you. Right. And going, not everybody can take it on the chin. Not everybody wants it direct. Some people want a little bit of little, little bit of icing sugar on it first, and they want to make it a little bit sweeter. So, you know, as we say when we teach our leaders, we say, if you're gonna if you're gonna give feedback and criticism, always do it in a shit sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> you know that sound? Yeah. Right, right HR folks side, talking about that a lot. Right on the other side. So bit of nice stuff, you know, then deliver what needs to be done, followed by some nice stuff. But when you deliver the stuff in the middle, clear accountability. Clear accountability, which is so often missed. Well, I talked to him about that. Yeah, but did you give him any accountability? Mm-hmm. Well, I told him they're going to get fired. That's not accountability. Right. That's an end result. It goes back to boundaries. How can they self-check? No boundaries. There has to be boundaries and accountability. You know, I think that's so important that – now, we spend a lot of time on this this particular area, but I, we see it all the time right now that the importance of this – becomes even more important in a world where everybody is oversensitive about everything. Now, there's some real clear injustices in our world, no doubt about it, that you should be enraged about. But even just last night, seeing something through my news feed about two celebrities, or I can't remember exactly who, but they were um, dressed up like a pilgrim and a Native American war chief. And man, Twitter went nuts. Oh, it's so insensitive. You ruined my childhood. I'm thinking, really? Are you serious? Because in my mind, I'm thinking, if you're so easily wounded by this, uh, then something else is wrong. And here's the fact of it. I, you know, I'm sure many people may disagree with me on this, and maybe even you'll disagree with me on this. But uh, you know, we people have to recognize that our feelings are going to get hurt, and not everybody's going to like us, and not everything that we say is going to be interpreted the correct way. But we have to have constructive conversation, communication, to be able to recognize, hey, this is my, if, if my behavior is overtly offensive, then yes, call me out, right? But if my sure. intention isn't, or if you're nitpicking every tiny little thing, because that's just what we do in this world today, because of social media, and we have the access to do it, then nothing will actually ever get done. You know, at the end of the day, we have to also look at, does our criticism come to a resolution? You know, there's, there's, a, there's a book called The Four Agreements, Oh, yeah. That most people will be familiar with. Um, and and um, I met Otis and, you know, terrific guy, great book, uh, highly recommend it. But there's one piece in it that I just, you know, I'm, I said for years before that book ever came out, and I continue to say, and I want to imprint it on everybody's head. And I have to imprint it on my own head. And that is, it's not personal. Right. Like, if you can just grasp it's not personal, whatever it is, it's not personal. Listen, right now you're probably in a relationship 
I know you're in a relationship. You're, we can't help but be in relationships. But you're probably in a primary relationship as you're listening to this. And every now and then, you know you've had one of those moments where you walk in, you walk in the door, and your partner has got it on. I mean, they've got it on. There's like some kind of mood going on, and you're like, whoa. And, and you say, so, hey, honey, how you doing? And you're like, you know, you get barked at, you're like, whoa. Yeah. And you feel like all wounded and all it's not personal. <laughs> you know, because maybe your wife, your husband, your partner had a terrible day at work. Maybe the kids were, were just a pain in the ass. Maybe the person just just uh, scolded themselves with something hot. Maybe they're hungry and they haven't eaten and they're hangry. There's a million other possibilities for why this is going on that isn't about you. But we live in this egocentric world where people are so thin-skinned that everything's about them. And we've all got it. I got it too. We've all got it. But it's like, take a breath, take a step back. And so when it comes up for me, I say to my wife, I'll admit, I say to my wife, pull Monty here, I say to my wife, you okay, sweetie? Nope. Something to do with me? Something that I've done, you need, we need to talk about, some kind of communication? And my wife will say, not everything's about you. <laughs> Thank you. And you know what? Then I have to walk away and I have to breathe and go, it's not about me. And I come back and say, is there anything I can do to assist? Yeah. But this is the thing is that we, you know, oh my God, you know, it's everything's about you. So somebody's wearing a pilgrim outfit and it's about you. No, it's not. It's about somebody wanting to wear a pilgrim outfit. Is right. it in poor taste? Yeah, yeah, kind of. I don't know. Maybe. But, <laughs> I don't know. But you know what? I, I don't care. I mean, really... I understand I'm all for Native Americans and I'm all for Black Lives Matter and I'm very liberal about those kinds of things and I think they're important. But there are certain things that I always say that I'm I'm a chauvinist feminist. I'm a very much a feminist. You try to I think women should earn every penny a man earns. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Totally <laughs> no obscure. kidding. This is twenty sixteen, I mean. <laughs> exactly. But you know, I walk down the street with my wife and somebody goes by, some hot girl goes by, and I go, yummy. That's chauvinistic. Is it politically correct? Absolutely not. Does my wife know where I'm coming from? Absolutely. Does she trust me implicitly? Absolutely. But at the same time, a good-looking guy goes by, and I'll say to my – we were in a coffee shop the other day. There was a guy there sitting there. guy's just having his coffee, and he's, like, devastatingly handsome. Like, he's not handsome. He's devastatingly handsome. <laughs> and, and we're walking by him, and I said to my wife, look at this bloke. It's right, it's, like, I'm literally right next to him. And I said, look at this bloke. Completely out loud, he can hear me. I go, look at this guy. He's, he's – He's devastatingly handsome. And he's like, he gets a big smile. And I said to my wife, isn't he? And she goes, oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> and I said, can I borrow your spoon? I need to scar you a little. <laughs> because, again, it's coming back to understanding that not everything that's said is offensive. Not everything is personal. Some of it is playful. And in the process, yeah, some people with very fragile, thin skin get hurt. Yeah. And if I do that, and by the way, I've done that. I will always very sincerely and compassionately say, I'm genuinely sorry. Right. You know, this behavior was clearly not okay for you. And I understand that. And if we're around each other again, I know that that's not going to work with you. And that's okay. I can respect that. Yeah. It's, it's all right. But like, that's a big communication thing we need to learn is that not everything is personal. And, and I think when you're dealing with, with your teams and your teams are dealing with you is – is like if you can tattoo that on your brain, is this personal? Because if I'm pissed off with you because you've not delivered the goods, that's actually not personal. No. 
I know it feels personal, but it's like I'm upset about that. I asked for the goods to be delivered. I've made you responsible. So I'm actually not upset with you, the human being. You have a five-year-old, right? Yeah, five and two-year-old. And a two-year-old. So we'll go with your five-year-old. If your five-year-old does something bad, do you tell your kid you're bad or you no. did something bad? No. Yeah, it, uh, you know, absolutely. It's, it's if he's done something wrong, then we address that. You know, it's not that he is a bad kid because he's not. In fact, no. he there was a time when he was around the age of four. He kept going. He's like, I'm a bad boy. And it's like, where'd you hear that? It's like, no, you're not. Sometimes you do bad things, but it doesn't make you a bad kid. I mean, it's yeah. So we understand that basic principle of modern parenting is to is to separate the behavior from the person. But we don't do that as leaders. We don't do that as people because they should know better. Right. Uh, you know, I, here's a here's a little something that I've always that has always helped me. And I don't know if I heard this somewhere else or if it was just my own revelation, you know, but it was one way that I was able to always that I've been able to deal with people no matter what is when I look at them. And if they're acting a certain way, uh, the first thing I think about is, you know, I think maybe after I had kids out of this, but first thing I think about is they were they were in diapers once, you know, they were they were a little two year old at some point. You know, right. there's so much of our childhood that's buried deep inside of us. And a lot of the ways that we act out as adults is because those things have never actually been addressed. And, you know, it's it really is. I mean, leadership is a whole lot like parenting. You either do it in a way that empowers and encourages and helps somebody grow, or you do it in a way that keeps them suppressed. And, uh, well, it just never works out for anybody. Well, as you know, I do a lot of work with high net worth family businesses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we go in and we do the leadership piece. But, you know, the first principle I say to them, is you think this is a business, it's a family. No. And by the way, it's the same when I'm working with a CEO. It's a family. And whatever dysfunction you grew up with inside of your family, you're going to play out here. Oh, yeah. And so oh, you've got to learn that leadership, great leadership, is great parenting. Well, I don't want to be my – I don't want to be my my, my, uh, my subordinate's uh, parent. Well, I, I know you don't want to be, but you chose to be a leader. So guess what? That's part of your job. So uh, be a good parent. No. Nobody wants to be a bad parent. Be a good parent. Be a good parent. What would you do? And I, I work with CEOs and say, you know, I'm having a problem with my, with my CFO. And I go, okay, tell me what it is. Blah, blah, blah. And I go, okay, here's, I'm going to give you an exercise. I want you to do it with me right now. And they go, okay, what's that? So I want you to imagine your CFO is five years old. What do they look like? And I get them to describe them, right? And they describe them. And I go, and I want you to imagine that they've just done something bad, some kind of behavior that was poor. And they go, okay, how would you address this five-year-old about that behavior? And then they tell me, and I go, that's how you deal with your CFO. And they go, well, that's, that's, that's demeaning and that's derogatory. I say, you don't talk to him like that five. <laughs> but you do it with the same level of compassion. You separate right. the behavior from the person. So as I said, you know, we want to judge everybody on their behavior, but we want to be judged on our intent. Well, start to think about parenting. Separate the behavior from the person, because sometimes they don't match. Sometimes the, the kid does a bad thing because it's a bad thing to do, but it doesn't make the kid bad. Right. It doesn't make the CFO, doesn't make the CMO, doesn't make the person you're leading bad. Grasp that it's being a great parent is wanting to help your kid to grow up and be a high-functioning contributor to society. Well, that's what you're leading your people to be, to be a high-functioning contributor to the organization who also leads. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the thing I take away from all this that I think is such an important point among many of the points that you made is that really now is the opportunity. There's a massive opportunity for great leaders to stand out and to emerge because there's so much junk 
and so many things that are being thrown out there that are killing and crushing organizations, squashing real leadership, authentic leadership. But if you can really get to the heart of that, you know, as you talk about your full Monty leadership, really get down to it, then you do have the opportunity to stand head and shoulders above everybody else and be noticing that not from a sense of, hey, everybody look at me, but because you can deliver because you are really, truly empowering and delivering great results within your organization and your your organization is accomplishing great things. So. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's excellent. You know, for the yeah, work and to do doing. that, got to be purpose driven. Got to be purpose driven. You got to know what the purpose is for yourself and for your organization. You got to be masterful at communication. You got to have high levels of emotional intelligence within yourself, and you got to develop a culture based on that. Yeah, that will breed leaders with inside of your organization, and you've got to and because of the emotional intelligence. You're making an environment that is emotionally safe for people to take risk and embrace failure so that you can grow faster. Your, your next piece you need to write, Dov, is called Rethinking the Safe Space. Maybe we can co-author it, right? I mean, we could jump on that. You're, you've been talking about creating a safe space, although in a different context of what uh, has been going yeah. around. So, yeah. Well, Dov, I know our time, you know, is we've we've had a great conversation. I know we could definitely keep on going because you and I, you know, being ADD, we could go on for a couple more hours. <laughs> but uh, for folks that are listening I to call it high creative. Yes, high creative. <laughs> <laughs> so for folks listening to this here, if they want to reach out and get in touch with you, what what is the best way uh, that they can do that? Well, obviously, as I said, you can go do your self-assessment at Matrix, like the movie, matrix.fullmontyleadership.com, Full Monty like the movie as well, fullmontyleadership.com. If you want to find out generally about um, my company, what we do, find my blog, it's under more articles, uh, my podcast, all those kinds of things, you can go to fullmontyleadership.com. That's where all those things are. You can follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook. Uh, you can find me on all of those kinds of places at the Dove Baron on Twitter. Um, and aside from that, listen, if you're really uh, interested in, in what it is that I do and you want to have a conversation about it, whether it's in context of your organization, the leaders you lead, or whether it's working one-on-one with me as a mentor, I work as a high-level coach mentor to get you to your very best, you can email me, Dove at DoveBaron.com. That's D-O-V at D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. Dove Baron. There you go. Awesome. Yeah, Dov, we'll make sure to put the links to all that up as, as well so folks can just click Thank on you. that. But uh, as always, man, I enjoy the conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I know we'll keep this going whether we record it or not. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and again, thank you, Jared, for having me on. I really appreciate it. You know, And I realize that the people who are listening are business people. And I know that we're all so busy. But I want to, again, repeat, Jared puts together these great guests for you. Not for your entertainment. If you want entertainment, go watch the Comedy Channel. If, you know, you want entertainment that is adding value to you. Stop. Go back. Take notes. There's 50 gems in here, not just from me, but from Jared in the feedback in this conversation. And that's what a conversation is. It's synergistic. It brings two parts together and creates something greater. Well, there's a third part to that. So there's me and Jared having a conversation. But the, the other third entity is you. Don't be a passive listener. Be an active listener who puts this in action because it will transform your business and transform your leadership. And I want to thank you for taking the time to be engaged with what it is that we shared with you today. I really appreciate you being on the other end of this. And I really appreciate you, Jared, for inviting me to be part of it. Thank you. Well, thanks, Dov. I appreciate that. And uh, I promise I didn't pay him to say all that. <laughs> so. I'll pick up the check later. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, thanks again, Dov. And uh, we'll be back in touch with you soon. Take care, brother. 
Thank you, sir. All right, everybody, that is it for today's show. Again, thank you so much for being here. And if you have not subscribed, make sure you do that before you uh, turn this episode off. And then also visit us at thenewfuturist.com where you can find out more about our work, uh, a lot of the free resources that we have. And of course, if you want to take your strategic thinking, your decision-making, or increase that skill set to drive real innovation and create the future, then you'll definitely want to check out the Foresight Academy. You can find that on our website at thenewfuturist.com under courses, but you can also find that at theforesightacademy.com. Again, that's theforesightacademy.com. And this is something we're doing in partnership with the University of Tennessee, where uh, folks that go through this program and they complete it are uh, issued a certificate in strategic foresight from the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee. So again, Check us out at thenewfuturist.com, but also if you're interested in uh, in the Foresight Academy and getting your certificate in strategic foresight, then definitely check us out at theforesightacademy.com. As always, uh, feel free to reach out to us directly. Let us know what you think. If you've got some ideas or comments or things that you want to see us uh, or hear us talk about, we want to hear from you. We want to know. So make sure that you comment on the blog and uh, and leave us a note. All right. Thanks again, everybody. See you soon.